We're sure glad to see all of you here at Northside on the weekend. We always like to take a moment and uh, welcome everyone in the centrum in the video venue and also welcome those that are online. Would you welcome them into the room right now? So glad to have you guys with us there. You know, I love Memorial Day weekend. It's just a whole lot of fun. It's an incredible time, kind of kicks off the summer. School's about out now. A lot of, of you are probably graduating and having a few graduates in your home or in your uh, extended family. How many have a graduation that you have to go to or need to catch or are gonna eat a lot of those little Sam's Club meatballs this afternoon, you know? Uh, I think I set a personal record last year on those. A lot of fun, it's a great time. Uh, so many things going on. We end the series, uh, Memorial Day, weekend is a, is a special weekend, I think, also because uh, as a kid growing up, small town Illinois, small church, I had uh, the, pretty much the opportunity every Sunday of Memorial Day weekend as a kid growing up, our family would all go out to the cemetery and there'd be a little community thing. If it rained, then we'd have it at the American Legion building in town. There might be 40 or 50 of us. And uh, we would listen to this one fellow who had the same old PA system year after year after year would uh, respectfully and reverently read the names of those uh, who had fallen in, in military defending the nation and in an honorable way given their life for our country. And we remembered that. I think when I talked to Scott Ham, who's one of our, our retired veterans here in the, uh, uh, in the life of the church, he told me uh, all of his time in the military, he says, I, I've learned to kind of understand the distinction, and that is that Veterans Day is uh, to remember the living, uh, but Memorial Day is to remember the fallen, those who had given their life. And I would like this weekend, if we could just for a moment, to, to blur those lines and combine that. And for us to be able to say thank you and thank God for uh, the men and the women who have served our country in the military or are presently serving our country in the military. And if you are or have, would you mind to stand up so we could just give thanks to the Lord for you and your sacrifice and your service. Amen. Thank you all so much, so much. As I mentioned, uh, the, the series that Nathan kind of picked out, I remember him saying, Dad, I think we're, we're going to go with one of those real hard sayings of Jesus, you know, one to the other in this whole series. I said, okay, which one do I get? He said, you know the one, uh, you know, if you uh, don't eat my flesh, drink my blood, uh, the Son of Man, you'll have no life. I said, oh, that's... That's a tough one, but I'll, I'll dive in on that one. So he's catching his breath this weekend. He'll be back next weekend. But I, I'm thankful because it gives us a chance to dig a little bit deeper, to let God speak to our heart, and for us to honestly examine uh, this weekend what in the world was Jesus saying when he said something as, as poignant and as powerful and seemingly confusing if you think it's literal, but to understand it's figurative. How do we unpack that? And that's what we want to try to do today. And would you, as, as the, uh, the, that verse from John 6, verse 53, appears on the screen, would you read it out loud together with me? Let's read it. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. Now, Jesus did not just kind of bring that up nonchalantly. What we want to understand today is when a, a, a saying that has a depth and somewhat of a confusion until you understand what he's actually saying there, uh, it, it has a, a tendency to make us think, wait a second, I, I'm not really sure what that is. Now, I don't know if many of you are old enough to remember a commentator named 
Paul Harvey. Anybody remember Paul Harvey? Okay. Yeah, so a great, great fellow. Uh, and he, a good Christian man, and he had a great insight and, and gave the news and the stories really well. I, I had two quotes that I remember he'd always have. Number one was page two. You know, he just lets you know he's going to the next page. The other one that we, he was famous for was he would give you the background story of something that you didn't know. And you're wondering all this time, who's he talking about? Who's he describing? What's the scenario on this? And then all of a sudden, he'll tie it to something that everybody knows. And he would end with a phrase, and that's the rest of the story. I had a a tremendous way of doing that. Now, this is kind of the rest of the story as we look at Jesus. It's the, the building up of how in the world did he get to a point of saying something as powerful, as penetrating, as confusing at a glance, as figurative and symbolic, as unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no eternal life within you. Now, there are many times in the Bible that it speaks figuratively. David says in the Psalms, you, O Lord, are our our son and you are our shield. Uh, Under your wings we will safely abide. There is no rock like our God. We're used to that type of a thing. The disciples got used to parables. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a story about a sower who went out to plant some seed, and he threw some of it uh, on the wayside there, some that landed in some uh, rocky soil, others with a lot of thorns, and others some really well-cultivated worked ground and had a great, great harvest out of that. And after he, he teaches that, and the, the seed was the word of God and the soil was our heart, the disciples literally come up to him in Matthew 13 and say, why are you telling all this so figuratively and, and parabolically? Why are you saying it where it's kind of hard for us to put two and two together? And Jesus took the next few verses to let them know, and in a phrase, if I could say it, he simply told them that understanding is progressive. Would you say that with me? Understanding is progressive. In other words, to be able to figure things out means you have to build upon that, build upon that, understand what that means. And that's what our our whole message today is about, is understanding that the, the penetrating words of Jesus did not just come up a little bit here. They're meant to be unpacked. They're meant to be understanding what all is really going on as he tells us the nature of the kingdom and why he's there. Now, In order to do that, I had to write a few notes down on literary styles, okay? And literary styles, you'll know a lot of them. Uh, They're basically simile, metaphor, idioms, idiomatic phrases, and hyperbole. First time as a kid I saw that, I thought it was hyperbole, you know, where you bowl real fast, I guess. I don't know. Hyperbole. It means to exaggerate, all right? Now, if you would look at simile, what that is about, a lot of times you see the word as in a simile. In other words, we would say, that person is as quiet as a mouse. That guy's as strong as an ox. That person doesn't let go of any of their money. They're tighter than bark on a tree. We all say things like that. Now, the metaphor is is. In other words, that person is boiling mad. Or some people may say, ah, to hear that news, that is music to my ears. Now, this one might be tough. You'll have to think a little bit because you've heard it before. It might have been a while, though. It's a phrase that says that necessity is the mother of 
invention. Okay, four people, we'd like to applaud you on that. That's good. Okay, it's a tough one because I have to, I've heard it before, but I have to think about it for a while. Now, the, the idioms are, uh, it's raining cats and dogs. Tell a kid in their uh, drama or their musical in the springtime at school, uh, you don't say good luck backstage, you say break a leg. You don't cry over spilled milk. You want to do a good job, you get up and you swing for the fence. If you're uh, really getting a, a little shaky, you're skating on thin ice and you can't expect a leopard to be able to change its spots. And if you're real frustrated, you're tempted to just throw in the towel. See, you got all those. You understand, we understand idiomatic phrases. Now, when it came to hyperbole, and this exaggeration, excuse me, that Jesus did. We understand that too. We sing, say things like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, or I died laughing. Well, you didn't die, you're still here. You're still laughing, but you're, you didn't die. But we say things of an extreme nature in order to make a point. Now, the question comes about, why did Jesus need to exaggerate here? Why did he have to make a point that if they took it literal, they're going to start, you know, chewing on him here, and that doesn't make sense. What is the deeper meaning of all this? He had to exaggerate because he was getting constant resistance. And when you had constant resistance, you have to draw a line and paint a picture. He exaggerated and used hyperbole here in his spiritual teaching because there is so much at stake the lives of the people and their faith and their belief was at stake. And there comes a time for a last-ditch effort. He was firm, he was clear, and he exaggerated to make a point, but he was never mean. How many of you and I who are parents have ever had to exaggerate to make a point? Okay. All right, we, we've done that, yeah. Uh, most, most of our kids say, I wish you only did exaggerate, you know? But we, we sometimes lose our cool just trying to make a point for our kids to understand that. Now, in the events that we'll look at today, and if, you're, uh, if, if you want to follow along in the Bible, we won't be reading the verses. We'll be kind of paraphrasing and making points out of that. But we'll go in John chapter 6, and you will be able to kind of keep score and see how things go on that. We're going to deal with three different events. One is a fish fry, a water walk, and a Bread Life Talk, a Bread of Life Talk or a BLT, however you want to do that. Yeah, I know. For some reason, my points always come out as food, it seems like. I don't give directions from places that other people would know. I give directions from restaurants. Isn't that sad, right? I do. But now the very first one is the fish fry. And it's in, uh, they weren't fried, but there was a lot of fish and there was a lot of bread. And it was a very special miracle, very special event in John 6, 1 through 15. Now, uh, when I was in Bible college, there was a kid there. He's a year older than me. Kid grew up in Tennessee. His name was Chubb Mantooth. Really good, funny guy. Let me tell you, we called him Chubb because he called himself Chubb. And we took that permission to go ahead and do that. But he was the life of the party and a lot of fun. He grew up not with television evangelists. He grew up with radio evangelists as a kid, listening to that all the time down in Tennessee. So every once in a while in the cafeteria when things are getting really boring here at this small little Bible college in Illinois, Chubb would stand up and go into his radio evangelist mode. And it was hilarious. We're all dying 
dying laughing. Uh, one that is the most memorable, he, he'd go into a thing and say, now listen, we're all glad you're here, and I want you to know we're, uh, we're sending this song out to Maud out there on Poplar Creek. And uh, I want to say, Maud, thanks so much for sending in the $25. Uh, God bless you out there. You know, he just, he's got the whole shtick down. And, but one line that he said was always so funny. He just said, and also, Maud, we're not, uh, we're not just saying thank you on the radio. We're going to send you a copy of the Holy Land cookbook. <laughs> what in the world is that? He said, the Holy Land cookbook, be the first one on your block to have one of these, guaranteed to feed up to 5,000 unexpected guests and, and visitors, all right? Say hallelujah. You know, so, so he's got that whole thing. We're just dying laughing. What's he going to come up with next? Left and right on that. Well, welcome to the Holy Land cookbook because guaranteed to feed up to 5,000 guests and visitors is what Jesus actually did at the fish fry, even though it wasn't fry. Now, to understand this, the miracle was literal. It wasn't figurative. He didn't cater. He didn't outsource. He multiplied the fish and the bread. Now, the scene, though, at the beginning of John 6, is he has all these people, and they're coming left and right, and they're there because he's been healing the sick, and they want to see what he's going to do next. Now, the Bible doesn't say they were bringing the sick to him. There's another point in the Bible that it does talk about that. It just simply says they want to see what he's going to do next, and they're hanging around. They're probably getting hungry, and the Bible says that Jesus talks to Philip, one of his disciples, one of the 12, and he knew what Philip was going to say. And Philip appears to be a guy who it's always half empty, it's never half full. And he says, Philip, what are we going to do for money to feed these people? And Philip's eyes just bug out, I guess. And he says, Lord, if we put all our money for the next few months, every wage we ever had, we couldn't even come close. And Jesus doesn't say anything. He, yeah, I figured that's what you'd say, Philip. All of a sudden, Andrew. Now, remember, Andrew is the brother of Peter, Peter and Andrew. Andrew was the one who told Peter, you got to come listen to this guy. Months before this, we have found the Messiah. Andrew is a bringer. Andrew is the only guy who can talk one little kid out of his sack lunch and get it that has five loaves and two fish. And one of the loaves had probably had a bite out of it. But anyway, he takes it and he gives it to Jesus. And Andrew says, Jesus, here's, <laughs> I only got one sack lunch from this little kid. That's all we got. I don't know what you're going to do with it. And at this point, Jesus takes over. And he organizes, and he said, okay, everybody, sit down, these type of groups. And he takes that sack lunch, and he offers it up to God, and he gives thanks, and he prays. Always remember, anything as small as a sack lunch or any ability that you have or any burden that you have, when it's put in Jesus' hands, it's going to get blessed. And all of a sudden, he begins to multiply the fish and the bread, and there were 5,000 men and Wives and kids, at probably at least 20,000 people there. And everybody made it through the drive-thru. Everybody was full. Does anybody remember in the story how many baskets were left over? Twelve. Twelve baskets of leftovers, and they started with one little sack lunch and probably fed roughly uh, a guessing, an estimating, 20,000 people. And I wonder, why did Jesus have twelve? Unless he simply said, uh, Matthew, Peter, James, and all 12 of the disciples, so they could leave with their jaw still on the floor. How did he do this? This is an incredible miracle. Now, as he did that, 
and the leftovers are somehow distributed. Doesn't really say how. They just were at least gathered. Then all of a sudden, the people who came to see one more miracle and they got fed. Oh, man, we're going to promote this guy. And the Bible says they tried to make Jesus their king up on the shoulders, beat up the Romans. Here we go. And Jesus escaped from them somehow. He just kind of snuck right out of their presence. The lesson from the fish fry is simply this. Jesus won't let you down. If you bring whatever you have to him, if you show up to listen to him like you're doing today, he will not let you down. Let me tell you right now, I believe, and I've said it for all the 20 years I've been here, I believe with all my heart, God will say things to you that I can only begin to try to say. I want you to listen to what his spirit is saying in your heart, in your life, in your situation right now, because I don't know. I mean, I try to read your mail, but I'm not that good, okay? We, 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 I don't really know that at all, honestly. But I have found so many times somebody will come up and say, George, you remember when you said, no, that's too smart for me. I wouldn't have said that, you know. But God right now is speaking into your heart. Where two or three are gathered in his name, Jesus says, I'm right there in the midst. He's not going to let you down. And he's not going to be pushed around. Nobody's going to tell Jesus at this point back then how he's going to save the world. Because saving the world was not ruling the world. My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. And his path was to the cross, to die for you and me and everyone. That's the lesson of the fish fry. He won't let you down, but he won't be pushed around. He knows our needs before we ask. Now, the second part of the story is the water walk, the walking on the water. And it's in verses 16 through 21. This next miracle wasn't just for everybody. It was for the disciples. The disciples wait on him. Remember, he snuck off and nobody knows where he is. They don't know where he is. It's getting dark. And they think, I guess he went across the lake. Well, let's just go across the lake. And they take off without Jesus. They head there. And a big storm comes up. The Bible says they had rowed out between three and four miles. And I've always wondered, why did John record there? I mean, who really cares? Was it three miles, four miles, five miles, right on the shore? How far did they row out before the storm came? Please understand, he lets us know so that we'll know Jesus wasn't walking in the shallow end, okay? They're out. They're out three or four miles out there, and it is deep, and the waves are big, and the storm is real, and they are afraid. And all of a sudden, they see Jesus walking on the water, coming to them, and he calms them down and tells them not to be afraid. Gets in the boat and it says they were overjoyed to have him on the boat and get to the other side. Because they knew nothing's going to happen as long as he's in the boat with us. Please remember that. God does not calm every storm around you. I believe he calms every storm within you. But the object is not and the lesson is not that he'll always calm everything down. But he will stay in the boat if you'll stay in the boat with him. And all of a sudden, they begin to understand what's going on. All of a sudden, they begin to understand, we can trust this guy. In quietness and trust will be your strength, Isaiah said years before that. And now it's becoming a reality, a miracle in their own life. They don't have to be afraid if they're with him. Now, the lesson from the water walk, if you will, is don't run ahead of Jesus and don't row ahead of Jesus. 
Don't try to do an end run around him, anticipate what he's going to do, and hope that he catches up with you. That rarely works, you know. He, he would much rather we trust him and not assume anything and follow him closely. I love where David says in Psalm 119, he says, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. Now, the lamp to my feet means I can see the next step that God wants me to take. The light to my path lets me know the direction. And I can't see everything clearly, but I can see a little bit where I ought to be headed. His word is a lamp to our feet, light to our path, will give us the direction that we need so we don't have to run ahead of him. I heard a new term in parenting this last week. I didn't realize this was out there. Uh, the others I had known, I, I knew a consulting parent, which is a healthy, godly, help your kids, uh, train them, teach them, encourage them, correct them, uh, let them feel some consequences that they bring on themselves. Don't always interrupt them so they don't feel the consequences of life. Be careful with all that. But being a good, healthy, mature, consulting parent, that's good. Uh, the second type of parent is the uh, drill sergeant parent where you just drill everything into them and just kind of scare them and shake them and get after them all the time and, and threaten them and motivate them. And if you're going to scare them into obedience, you're going to have to keep scaring them the rest of their life, you know. That's what happens. Now, the third type is the helicopter parent, all right. The helicopter is one, they fire it on up and, uh-oh, uh, little Johnny's in trouble. We're going to go help him out. And we descend upon him there and we rescue and deliver. And if you continue to do that, that seems to be something that, that continues on for a while. But, but that, that's okay too. Nothing wrong with firing it up once in a while. But the new one that I heard this last week, I'd never heard before, it, it has to do with uh, uh, some of the parents in the news that have been uh, uh, making sure there's a uh, uh, a path for their kids to get to a real good college, regardless of what it costs, you know? They call them the snowplow parents right now, man. They're going to plow their way right through there. Now, the reason I mention that is because it is important to understand that God goes before us. He literally plows through the snow and everything else to give us a path that is his path. And it may seem a little bit different to each different person of the path he wants each of us on. But to hold on to him and to follow him closely and understand he will go before you. All throughout the Old Testament, it talks about the, the worship team would go in front. They would be the infantry uh, rather than all the swords and shields right there. Their worship preceded them in battle because their worship declared who God was. And if there was anything that the rest of the army needed to hear, is they needed to hear and they needed to see the faith who, of those people who would go out and lead before them. God will always go before us if we let him. Sometimes we call it working upstream. If you've ever found out you, you get a chance to have this happen or that, or you, you, you go to another place and, and, and all of a sudden you realize God was preparing that or them or whatever it is for you right now. And you realize that blessing of what he does. Now, the final section, the final section is the, uh, the bread of life talk. So we've gone from the fish fry, a miracle for, the, for all the people. We've gone to the, uh, the water walk, the miracle for the disciples to have their personal faith strengthened in relationship. And now Jesus declares the deeper teaching. It's here where this hyperbole phrase appears. But it doesn't just come up first. It comes after resistance and resistance and denial and griping and all of the unbelief 
that he finally has to make this strong point. Now, we'll kind of run through these little passages here. Because the first one in verses 22 to 27 is the crowd. The crowd is chasing miracles. One miracle after another. They saw this happen. They saw that happen. We'll go uh, catch this and see, well, oh, man, he fed us lunch last time. That's incredible. Let's go back. I don't want to, it wasn't what's going to Jesus do next. What's he going to feed us next? And they were just wondering what's going to happen. And in the midst of the crowd chasing miracles, Jesus redirects them to eternity. And he says, you need to understand, don't be worried about just the stuff you can receive right now. You need to look to eternity, look beyond right now your need, and look to God and look to the future, look to heaven. And while you're at it, look to me so you can understand those things that are coming up. I found in all of our lives there are moments that we get preoccupied with what really is happening right now, but then all of a sudden something significant happens to us and we begin to pursue heaven and plead with God like never before. And I would, I would venture to say in some of our lives probably, there's been a moment or two that we have found in our relationship with God that we began pursuing him on a more intense level. I'm guessing this weekend that... Uh, some of us may have a heavy heart, and perhaps right now, just a show of hands, for you, if there's somebody that's on your heart, and honestly, you're pleading pretty passionately with God on their behalf, would you just lift your hand? If that, that's your, every service, every service, there have been a bunch of hands go up, and you know who that person is, and you know that situation. Uh, for us in our family and also in the Northside family, uh, most all of you know Ben, our college-age pastor. Ben's our nephew, okay? My sister's youngest. Uh, their middle child, little nine-year-old girl, Calla, just yesterday was transferred from Cosair Norton Children to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. They're They're praying. <laughs> Matter of fact, they're listening in right now. And their prayer is for God to be gracious and healing and understanding the, the medical community. Uh, there's a certain amount of little activity within the brain and perhaps some, some things that are there that need to be corrected, need to be understood properly that uh, they kind of scratched their head about a little bit this week. But I know they're pleading. And I know all of you, in one way or another, are asking God on behalf of someone near to us and dear to us to bring healing and strength and comfort and blessing. So at the risk of interrupting a sermon, which sometimes is just a good thing to do, I want to ask you to bow with me and you pray for who is on your heart knowing that Jesus was trying to help these people see if they would seek eternity and God's economy, then they'd be blessed. Let's bow together. Father, right now in the, in the midst of our time of teaching, we ask that it would be a time of learning and a time of prayer, a time of offering up to you what's in our hands, in our heart, and in our future that only you know. 
And God, this morning for each of us here at the 1130 service, I, I know there may be some similar things, but probably there's some different things that we won't necessarily verbalize to anyone else, but we would to you. And I pray that your spirit would just simply translate that burden and request from our heart to you. And I pray for your answer, Lord. I pray for healing where there needs to be healing, for comfort, for strength, for patience, for peace in the midst of, of troubled hearts. I pray for all those things that might be on the hearts of our people here right now. So we offer them to you, God. And we ask for you to do what only you can do. And we ask that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. If you wouldn't mind to turn to your neighbor and just say, I'll be praying for you. Okay? Now turn back and say, I don't know what I'm praying for, but I'm praying for you too. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. All right? Okay, now the next part of this discussion that leads up to Jesus getting pretty strong to the point is what I would call where the crowd wants power. And in verses 28 and 29, they say, Jesus, we want power. We want to be able to do this kind of cool stuff. We want to be able to, you know, make some fish sandwiches appear. We want to heal sick people. We want all this to happen right now. And all of a sudden, Jesus calls them to believe. And he, he kind of confronts them, as he will many times here in the next few verses. And he says, you need to understand, you got one job. Your job is to not fix that and that and have this power and that power. Your job is to believe in me. Say that with me if you would. Believe in me. Those are Jesus' words. And he says, you got to figure this out. You have to look at me, see the things that I do, but hear the words that I say. Later on in 1 John chapter 4 in his last epistle, he writes a little letter and he tells to the early church in verse 2. He says, you got to test the spirits. He said, you got to make sure... <clears throat> that the teaching that's out there in the church is true. He says, anybody who says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that spirit, that teaching, that person is, is saying God's message. And I thought, that's pretty simple. But you have to understand, what he said was, Jesus has come in the flesh, meaning Jesus is God who left heaven and took on humanity. That's where the breakdown happens. And he says, you've got to believe in me and where I came from and understand I am God who has come in the flesh to live and to love and to teach and to die on your behalf. The next thing you know, in, in the next 10 verses, the crowd demands some miracles. So with every type of redirection that Jesus gives, they got one other complaint. Well, we want some miracles. We want to see this. And they actually say, we want some manna like uh, Moses used to give us in the Old Testament times long before in the wilderness. And Moses was the man, let me tell you, he made sure we had some bread every morning. And if you know that story, when they were in the wilderness, in the desert, God allowed bread, manna, to appear every morning uh, like the dew uh, um, on the grass, except on the Sabbath. So that meant on Friday, you got to bag two days worth to get to Sunday. And, or else if you bag too much, it's going to spoil. God was teaching them all along the way. Now, I've done some extensive research on manna and found out the closest thing we have to our day, coriander seed tasting like honey, is some good soap of peas at a Mexican restaurant, okay? <laughs> extensive study, and I think I found that to be true. That, that's the closest thing I can find, I know. I'm telling you, though, God said, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to take care of you, and they're saying, hey, 
We wish we had Moses back because all we got out of you is one fish sandwich. He took care of us day after day after day. And Jesus distinguishes himself from Moses. He said, you need to understand, God gave you manna. It wasn't Moses. Let's get that straight. And you can see the heat turn up just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Why? Not because they're offending Jesus, because they're speculating is their own truth, and they're going to miss him. They're going to miss eternal life if they don't accept him as he is. Then the crowd asks for daily bread, and Jesus says, here's my one purpose. I told you, you, your one job is to believe. My job is to do the will of the one who sent me and not lose any one of you. The crowd goes on in verse 41 and following. The crowd begins to murmur and they discount Jesus and they say, wait a second, Joseph and Mary, I know you. My kid played t-ball with, with you in, in a long time ago when you were a kid. I remember, you know, and they, they literally say, we knew you back when. And they discount him as being all human rather than divine and human. And Jesus confronts him and he explains how God draws people to himself. And you've got to allow, he says, God to draw you to a point of belief. You can't do it with just your own physical effort and mental effort. You have to be willing to believe and let him draw you to himself. Next few verses, the crowd argues about his teaching. And here's where he drops the bomb. They say, well, we don't think this is really right. We can't figure this out, da 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 and he emphasizes and he hyperbolizes that he's not optional. You can't treat Jesus like a buffet. I'll take a little of this, but none of that. I'll take a little love, joy, and peace, but we'll leave the patience and the self-control to somebody else. No. Jesus says, all that I am Unless you figuratively consume me, eat my flesh, drink my blood, as the Messiah, you have no eternal life. Unless you accept all of my teaching, all that I am, all that I do, you'll have no life within you. Now, side point, if you have Catholic teaching in your background, uh, it's a little different from Protestant teaching at this point. Protestant teaching would say this verse is talking uh, in figurative, uh, symbolic terms. Within the Catholic Church, their teaching would be a doctrine called transubstantiation, which means that the, the bread and the juice, uh, or the body and the blood, that, that literally becomes the body and the blood of Christ during the Lord's Supper. A little bit different, quite a different departure there. But we would teach that it's a symbolic thing because he was talking about accepting him, all that he is. The next thing is the crowd says, okay, this teaching is just too hard. All of a sudden, they start scratching their head, but they really weren't scratching their head. There's a big difference between scratching your head and thumbing your nose. It's one thing to say, I don't get it, rather than I don't want to get it. When they said it's too hard, Jesus pointed out their unbelief. There's a phrase that you might hear in our culture today in religious terms of being an agnostic 
not an atheist. An atheist would believe there is no God. Believer is a believer. And agnostic means it's against knowledge, which means no one can really know for sure. So the agnostic says there may be, there might not be, we'll just see. And it avoids accountability. It appears to scratch its head. But in my opinion, it shuns the truth. And this is why Jesus gets so pointed, not so mad, so penetratingly pointed. At that point, the Bible says many fringe disciples desert. A lot of the peripheral followers who've been following, a lot of the, the 5,000 that are there, hey, they caught, the, they caught the feeding time and they're waiting for the next one and, and I'll be doggone, I didn't get a fish sandwich today. We didn't even get any sopapillas. He's not coming up with anything. I'm out of here. That's literally what they said. And they begin to leave by the hundreds and they leave by the thousands. And as many fringe disciples desert, Jesus even lets the 12 off the hook in verses 66 and 67. And he turns to his closest friends. And he just simply says, do you, you want to leave too? I mean, he's not pouting. He's just saying, you have to keep yourself here. I, I'm, not, I'm not manipulating. I'm not controlling. You have to follow me because you want to follow me. I love that. I love the respect for the freedom of choice that Jesus gives. It's scary, but I love it. It opens the door for Peter all of a sudden to stand up, and he speaks up. And I've done some extensive research in the Greek language on this one, too. And I found the first mention in the Greek language of the word, duh, because that's what Peter says. He says, really? I know, I know you're giving us the freedom to walk like everybody else is walking. But he literally says, Jesus, where would we go? Are you kidding me? He goes on, he says, you, you are the one who has the words of life. We've listened to rabbis all our life. It didn't make sense. They were playing games and manipulating us and doing whatever they want behind everybody else's back. You're the only one who's tried and true. We can see it in your eyes, hear it in your heart, see it in your words, see it in all the miracles that you perform. We're not going anywhere. We believe that you are the Holy One of God. And this is from his heart and from his gut, from his mind. You see, when Jesus gets to the point of you and I having to decide, understanding that he is not optional, there's nothing optional about him, then all of a sudden we find out whether we really believe or not. We're going to have communion in just a moment. Before we do, we're going to sing a song. There, there's something about understanding the lesson from the uh, bread of life teaching, if you will. Because the lesson from that is with Jesus, it's all or nothing. I remember my first moment of coming to a point of significant public belief. I was about nine or 10 years old at church camp. And I'd heard all about God, and mom and dad had, had, had lived that out, and my sister as well, and, and uh, my grandmother who lived with us as long as I could remember. And uh, I, it made sense, but when they let me know that I have a chance, a public opportunity to declare that 
he's my Lord and Savior and accept him in my heart and be baptized in a dirty lake. And uh, it sounded fine to me. And so I just walked right on forward. It's kind of funny. They had this for junior age kids, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old. And they had us on a hillside. So you come forward, walk down if you want to accept the Lord. And, and they trick you because you're walking so fast down, you can't turn around and change your mind. You just go, you go right on. And I, I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget another moment when I was about 15, sophomore in high school, and we had a revival in our home church in March in 1970. And, and the Word of God was preached in a powerful way. And our church was pretty dead and pretty boring. And you're lucky to get an amen out of a bad special song someday. You know, they, we just didn't say much. But I'll never forget seeing a lot of tears and a lot of people come forward. And I remember just sitting right out there and I'm just thinking, God, this is great what you're doing. Can I help? <laughs> Anything you want me to do. And I just heard from heaven and a non-audible, Sure. And I've felt the call to help, whatever it looks like. It doesn't matter. I had another moment in a sense of re-enlisting, if you will. It was with me and my dad and my sister, October 10th, 1977. And it was while we were riding in a car from the church where the funeral was to the cemetery after my mom had died when I was 22, very suddenly. I remember the moment. We looked at each other, because it's just us. And we're going to the, to the cemetery. And I remember we looked at each other, and I said, okay. We either believe this, or we don't. And we tearfully just embraced and I remember Kathy, my sister, just saying, I believe this with all my heart. That there's something when your life is tested of whether you re-enlist and understand what is at stake in following Jesus Christ. And I would just pray, this might be a great time in your heart on Memorial Day weekend to re-enlist. I invite you to just do that as we sing. So we get ready for communion right now.